All right, uh, if you have your Bible, please uh, p- turn to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, usually when I look at Philippians, if I find myself turning to Philippians chapter 2, oftentimes it's to meditate upon, it's to look upon the first 11 verses. I love what comes after it as well, and I know the verses that come after it very well because they speak to my heart as well, but usually I look at the first 11 verses. But I want us to look at the following verses, 12 through, let's say, 16, a little chunk of Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, uh, there's just a chunk here of just, talks about Christian living in light of the first 11 verses, which I don't have time but to reference a little bit later. Otherwise, if I take those verse by verse, this will become a little mini-series, which I don't intend to do. So I only want this to be one message, Lord willing. But these verses that I'm going to go through are verses that I really appreciate and I think about quite often, actually, especially the first uh, two or three verses that I'm going to be going through, because they're very pertinent to our walks. And in verse 12, we read, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we're going to look at more than just that verse, so we can't spend a lot of time on any one verse, but we're called to uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And Paul lets them know, hey, you're not only obeying the Lord, you're not only doing God's will when you see Pastor Paul or Apostle, Apostle Paul there, you know, but even in the absence of Paul, he realized these, that these folks at the Church of Philippi are very sincere. And that's why in Philippians chapter 1, when you look at verse 6, 7 in that area, he says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you shall complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, I can say this about you because I've seen your obedience from the beginning. He's confident because he's seen a great track record with their walks that that church, at least the corporate group as a whole, that they're going to persevere into the, to the end. And here he, again, underscores their obedience. But it's interesting. He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You think about that? I mean, that's a verse that I do think of quite often. Uh, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's interesting. Some people miss, they get confused when they see that that verse. They think it means something like work for your salvation with fear and trembling. As though it's something that you're trying to obtain and you're working for it. But it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. You're working out something that you already have that's already in you. If it's not in you, you can't really work it out. He's talking about something they've already received. And Paul's not contradicting the apostolic message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that his gift of salvation is free. He's not contradicting Philippians 2, 8, 9, that by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So he's not saying, hey, it's not a free gift. You have to work for it. He's saying to work it out. In other words, those of you who are saved already have salvation in you that you're to work it out in your life. And this is, this is very, very important. So, uh, and by the way, God does call us to fear him in both the Old and the New Testament. Amen. And sometimes that fear uh, is, is a reverence. It's an awe of who he is. But also at times it is a fear and trembling in regard to making sure that we're right with God, making sure we're on the straight and narrow path. Certainly Jesus 
was concerned about a genuine fear that we have regarding making sure we're right with him, that we're going to spend eternity with him. That's why Jesus said, don't fear man who can destroy the body, but fear God who can destroy body and soul in hell. That's why Paul said, don't be high-minded to the believers who were just gloating over the fact that Jews were broken off of the tree, but they were, they were in as though they stood in without condition and just un- unconditionally. And that's why he says, don't be high-minded, but fear, because if he didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And, uh, and they were cut off because of their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. But he told them that they need to continue this to stand, otherwise they too would be cut off. That's obviously more than just a reverence. That's a reverence with a concern that you continue to abide in Christ. Here he's talking about, in this context though, he's talking about salvation, but he's talking about working out the salvation that we already have. Even in chapter 11 of Romans, it's salvation they already have. They're in the tree. They're in the olive tree through faith. They're called the continued faith. We're saved by grace through faith, so it's a gift. So we already have eternal life. We already have Christ in us. Now we're to work out our salvation. We're to... uh, like a math problem in a way, like a, like a math student might work out a math problem. We're supposed to work out our, our Christian life and we're not to work to obtain, but to proclaim our salvation, to show our salvation that we already have. And that's, that's important that we understand that. Now, it's interesting because the Greek word uh, katagazomai, katagazomai is an interesting Greek word and it's, it's, it's an expression that's actually used about a hundred years before Paul used it here, and between 64 and 62 BC by uh, the, the uh, ancient Roman scholar Strabo, who wrote in Greek, and he used this word, and he uses it of those who are um, g- getting silver out of a mine in Spain, and how they need to work out, get out that silver, amen? And uh, the context, though, is that they, is to put, you know, everything into getting out the value of that particular mind because there's this precious silver there. How much more, because we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, should we put effort in allowing our salvation to be worked out, to manifest it in our lives, to mine that which God has put within us and develop it to maturity? I think it's very, very important that we don't remain stagnant, that we don't just say, oh, I'm saved, praise God. I'm just going to kind of hang out, you know, and and uh, just be grateful for my salvation, but not do anything for Jesus, not shine his, not, 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 not let him live his life through us. I think that's very, very important that we understand that. Now, it's interesting because when you look at verse 12, so then my beloved, we're beloved by God, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's I'm, I'm glad he didn't just say fear. A lot of times it's the fear and praise God, we see that. But sometimes you'll see this fear and trembling. And the idea there is that God is radical, that God is a consuming fire, that God is altogether different than us in the ontological sense that he is the uncreated creator of all things, that, that he's the awesome God, and that we should say, wow, I can't believe that he gave me life. Well, I can't believe that he showed me kindness and he redeemed me from my sins. You know, what an incredible God this is, but the God that created the universe, and I'm going to stand before him and give an account for my life at the Bema seat judgment, at the, at the uh, not the great white throne judgment, because we're saved, those of us who are in Christ, but we're still going to give an account for our lives. Romans chapter 14, the scripture is very clear. Second Corinthians chapter 5, 
for the things we've done in our body to receive reward or loss of reward, not regarding salvation. If you're a Christian, you're saved. So, but when you think about that and that we're going to account for this life, we ought to want to make sure we are working out our salvation. Peter kind of deals with that. I don't know, some of you, many of you probably were here. Praise God. If you're newer to our ministry, uh, you could check it out. It was a series, of, I don't know, it was like, you know, seven or eight messages long in 2 Peter chapter 1, just a few verses where it talks about adding to your faith moral excellence, right? And to moral excellence, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and on and on, seven virtues that you're to add to your faith so you can continue to grow in what in the, the divine attributes, not the incommunicable attributes, but the divine attributes that are communicable, things that come from the Holy Spirit that we're allowed to participate in as you work them out in your life and grow in your Christian faith. So it's important that we understand that, that God encourages us and wants us to go forward. Doesn't want us to just sit around. You sit around, you sit on a bike, eventually you're gonna fall off the bike, amen? You have to go forward. So, and I think it's really interesting that verse 12 is right next to verse 13 and how they complement one another. Verse 13, the very next verse, after he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he says, for it is God... I love it. For it is God who is at work in you. So the source of our salvation is God. And he's at work where? In us. The salvation is already in us. Both to will. I love it. To will. That means to give us a desire, a willingness, and to work for his good pleasure. I love that. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wow. So it's God in me. I'm regenerated, I'm born again, you're born again because Jesus lives in you through faith. And now the God who is in us, who's the source of our salvation, and who is our salvation, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is the life, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we allow his life to manifest in our lives and through our lives. Paul says, no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me and through me, amen? So we need Jesus to, we need to surrender to Jesus basically, and I love it because it's like, wow, okay, how do I, how do I work out my salvation? Do I got to just kind of just grunt and just do it? You have God living in you. It's by his grace. It's not by your strength or your power. It's by you surrendering to his power. And this is critical to understand. I mean, I've often talked about, you know, the Christian life, that no one could possibly live the Christian life. Joe Schimmel, not by himself, cannot live the Christian life. I'd fall flat on my face. The energy that I have to preach all these years, to stand in the faith, to go forward and seek to go forward, not with perfection, not even close, but to continue to do so, I know is by his power. The minute I think I'm doing it in my own strength is the minute I begin to fall. The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's all by his grace. And I always say, the only thing we could take credit for ultimately is our sin, right? Paul said, you know, by grace, I am what I am. It's all by grace that we're able to stand. Say, well, he's able to make his servant stand, and he does make us stand. So it's imperative that we recognize that we cannot live the Christian life. It's impossible to live the Christian life apart from Christ. Apart from me, Jesus said, you could do what? Nothing. But Paul said, through him, through Christ, Philippians 4.13, we could do what? All things. And I quote those verses often because I don't want us to ever miss this, get on this kind of, you know, legalistic works treadmill where we're in our own strength trying to, trying to please God and we, and we forget it. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit gives us gifts, but the Holy Spirit also empowers us to live the Christian life. And it's imperative that we get that. It's imperative that we understand what we're talking about here. It's like, you know, we're on what the Bible calls the highway of holiness. You know, we're on the straight and narrow road that leads to life. Amen. We have life. He's in us. We're also pursuing Jesus. And if we die before we reach, uh, before he comes back, we die in Christ. Be absent from the body, be present with the Lord. But you need to make sure that you're going forward on this highway to holiness. And many people, it's like a car. If you think of car as their, you know, salvation, as representing your, your journey with the Lord, many people stall out on the road to life, on the road which is life, and their, their car is parked. And they're just sitting there, and they don't get this. There, a lot of people, when you've heard the saying, you know, let go and let God. And they're let go and let God. People just let God do it. God will do it. Yeah. Do you not need to uh, put your foot on the gas to get your car to go? Do you not need to put your hands on the steering wheel? <laughs> yeah, you have, you have a responsibility as well. Verse 12 is your responsibility. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 is God's responsibility. It's God who is in you to will and to do or work his good purpose. So there's a synergism in our walk with God. Okay? God does all the saving. We're saved by grace through faith. Amen? All we can do is surrender in faith to him and allow him to save us. When it comes to walking with him, you have a responsibility you can't just say, oh, monergism. There's this one singularity, God at work, and I don't have to do anything. And you have millions and millions of people, the, we call them sometimes the chosen frozen. No, I'm chosen, and they don't go forward to do anything for God. I'm chosen by God. Hey, you ever think of witnessing? If God wants me to witness, he'll move my mouth. Uh, did you ever think of, you know, your claim to be saved, your claim to be Christian, but did you ever think of, you know, not going to the bar and getting drunk anymore? Or, you know, if when God wants to take that away from me, he will. Did you ever think of not chasing women around and being content and thankful for your wife? If when God wants to do that in me, he'll do that in me. And a lot of folks live like that. They're waiting for God to act. Dangerous. God's already acted. He already saved us by his grace. He already died on the cross. He already rose again. And if you're a believer, as believers, he's come to live in us, Amen. And he's at work in us to do and to will and to do his good service in verse 13. But verse 12, they compliment one another. You can't just sit around and say, well, I'll just wait till God does it. Well, if God wants to tell me about Jesus, somebody about Jesus, you know, I'll just, he'll just make me an evangelist someday. And they grow old that way, thinking that way. In the meantime, we need to get off our rear end and start serving Jesus. We need to get off our rear end and repent of sin. Amen. We recognize that God has already put the gas in the tank if you're a believer, amen? And we need to make sure that we are not just waiting around for God to act. He's already acted. In fact, right here, he's commanded us to work on our salvation with fear and trembling. That's another way he acts. His Holy Spirit prods us. His Holy Spirit draws us. His Holy Spirit encourages us. His Holy Spirit gets grieved by us. His Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. His Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit woos us into service. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit when we say no and we fall into a false theological conundrum where you think, well, salvation is all by grace, therefore sanctification is by grace too. Yeah, 
He sanctifies us by grace and, and he sanctifies us just like by grace we're saved through faith. Even our sanctification grows through faith. But even to become a believer, you have to put your trust in the Lord. It's not a work. It's not a work. He did the work on the cross. He paid for our salvation, but you have to trust Jesus. And when it comes to walking with him and working out your salvation, you need to do that with fear and trembling and be serious about it. He's just not saying, consider this. Paul is like, you know, you might want to just consider working out your salvation. Might be a good idea. As though it's optional. No, with fear and trembling. This is super serious before God. Super serious. You better, you should not just have an attitude that's cavalier about it either. Yeah, I should work out my salvation. No, with fear and trembling. That's a serious deal. God's serious about this. What a great salvation we have in Christ Jesus. And we're going to take it lightly and not work out our salvation with fear and trembling, realize that it's serious before God. It means we need to take our prayer seriously. We need to recognize he's holy, holy, holy. And we need to approach him with a sense of uh, holy fear and trembling. Like you are an awesome God. And if the holy angels, the holy cherubim or the seraphim, these radical angels of God, more radical than the other angels, if they're like this, and, you know, with their, their wings whew, before you. How much more should we humans made of flesh be like that before him? We ought to be crying out saying, God, have mercy on me. Thank you for letting me enter your throne room. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for your salvation. May you help me work it out by your grace with fear and trembling, Lord, and rely upon the power of your Holy Spirit, which he does, and he empowers us. Verse 13. These, if you just look at one verse and you meditate on one verse only, you're in trouble. Because if you just look at work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and that's the only verse you really had on your Christian walk, you'd be like, oh, 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 and you just collapse without strength. But if you got verse 13 as well, because it's God at work in you, praise you, Jesus, and he wills it, amen, he purposes you to do his work, then you're like, praise God, I can do it by your strength. That's your will. Or if I just focus on verse 13, yep, it's his, you know, God works in us to, to will and do his good purpose, well, praise God. Just wait around and you ignore verse 12 that you have a part, amen, to work out your salvation. If you're in trembling, you're just gonna sit around and so you're gonna be on a works trip, verse 12, if you just look at verse 12 without the context or if you just look at verse 13, you're gonna be on a licentious trip. You'll be among the frozen chosen and you don't wanna do either of those. So it's important that we are not like that car that just sits there parked because we're waiting on God to just push it. Or, verse 13, we're waiting, oh, God's gonna push it. No, verse 12 goes with verse 13. Or verse 12 without verse 13, I gotta get out and push the car. I'm tired of pushing my own car. I'm tired, it's not even getting anywhere. I'm gonna go sit in my car and just rest and go nowhere. I'd rather do that than just push my own car. So you got people, verse 12, who are just focused on that verse, who are pushing their car and frustrated. Or you got people in verse 13 who are waiting for God to push their car and frustrated. When it's, guess what? You don't have to push at all. But you have to put your hand on the steering wheel and surrender to God. You have to say, yes, Lord, I want to go and hit the gas. And then he'll give you the energy to go forward. Amen? So I love these verses because there's such a beautiful tension between the two that brings balance to the Christian life. And you have some people that call themselves Arminians that tend to focus on verse 12. And sometimes they can get in these work trips. And you have some people that, called Calvinists that focus more on verse 13. And they can get on this let God trip and not do anything for the Lord. We need verse 12 and verse 13. Amen? 
We rely on God's grace, verse 13, but we also obey him, verse 12, and we go forward in him. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, I love it because he's the one that supplies the strength to will and to do and to live the successful life that he's called us to live. Now, verse 12 and 13. I know I've talked about both of them, but let's just read them and then go into verse 14. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. The for is connected word. Okay, it's conjunction. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One of the big problems in these days that we live in is that people are lovers of self. Last days, terrible times will come. It says, last days, Paul says, 2 Timothy 3, 1. King James says, last days, perilous times will come. It's, it's cooking right now. I mean, there you, there's going to be an explosion, I believe, an explosion of wickedness after this whole coronavirus thing goes down in certain sectors. Just if, not saying the Lord showed me that. I'm just saying some things I feel are going to happen. And I'll tell you what, uh, it says here to work for his good pleasure. Many Christians, they just read the Bible for their good pleasure. What can I, I get from God? But we exist for his pleasure, for his will. Amen. Now he blessed us and he wants to enjoy life and enjoy, you know, enjoy him and, and, and enjoy him forever. Praise God. But it says there'll be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And we need to make sure we say, God, you created me for your good pleasure. You're the creator. You know, my life's to revolve around you. And then when you're in the proper Christian orbit that God created me in, you'll be blessed. But if you try to get God to orbit around you as, you know, you'll be in trouble. So we live for God. And then in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, scholars and Bible commentators and so forth are kind of divided as to whether he's talking about, you know, grumbling and disputing with God or with fellow Christians or with your neighbors. And some will say, well, Paul uses a similar language in 1 Corinthians 10.10 of those who were grumbling against God. They'll park themselves there. Others will say, yeah, but Paul, when you read Philippians, he's concerned that there's peace in the church and he's concerned about people grumbling and disputing with one another. And then you could read the context as he goes further and he talks about being lights in this world. So he's, some would say, well, he's talking about, you know, grumbling and disputing and, and being at odds with people in the world where you're a bad witness. And I look at it, I say, Okay, why does it have to be one or the other? You know, if God tells us not to grumble or dispute, that certainly means not with him. Amen, absolutely means not to do it with him. And it definitely means not to do it with one another and other people in the world. We're supposed to be at peace with all men as much as it's in our power, it says. Okay. Now, the same apostle Paul, who talks about not disputing here, understood that you need to stand up for the faith at times and read the book of Acts. He disputed with the lost leaders and so forth to bring them to Jesus. So the idea here is to be murmuring, complaining, and whining. And it's important that we understand this because we want to make sure that we are not, if we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, we're arguing less and less. We're murmuring and complaining less and less. Amen? Because Christ is shining in us. 
And if you look at the first 11 verses, which we don't have time to, except a couple of those verses, look at verse, verse uh, 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That will stop a lot of disputing. That will stop a lot of murmuring. That will stop a lot of complaining. What? Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That means instead of constantly whining and complaining and murmuring against other people, you'll be concerned about their interests, just like you're concerned about God's pleasure. He reorientates us to put him first and love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors ourselves. So it's interesting. Well, then he tells us how we are to do that. How we're to put others' interests, not just our own interests, and others' interests before ourselves. Paul says, esteem others higher than yourselves. Paul says, condescend to the man of the lower estate. Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. There's all kinds of verses where Paul gives us these warnings about watching our attitudes and who we are. Then he tells us what kind of attitude to have, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Meaning, look at what Jesus was like and look at the attitude that he had. And he, since we're Christians, we follow him, have the same attitude that he had. Then he tells, spells it out. Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be continually held on to or grasped. He left heaven, right? He could have just stayed there and wor- been worshipped for eternity to come, but he became a man. But he emptied himself, verse 7. Kenosis is in the Greek. Taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. It's so rich, and I'm tempted to stop and talk about these things, but I can't. Being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. To the point of death, even then he says, even worse, even death on a cross. The most humiliating way. I think it was Seneca, one of the uh, early historians, talked about it being the most humiliating way to possibly die was through crucifixion. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That rolls into that. So then... So then, based on the fact that God's called us to be humble and not just consider our own interests but the interests of others and has given Christ as the ultimate example, and look what Jesus did for us. Even though he was God, he became a man, died the worst death possible, and he was exalted. High, the name above every name is follow that path. God gives grace to the humble, then he, but he resists what? The proud. The Bible says honor comes before, or humility comes before honor. Amen? So you humble yourself and you follow this recipe of spirituality, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and then God lifts you up in due time. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. Amen? So this is so rich. So, I I mean, hey, we did go through the verses 4 through 11, because guess what? I want you to understand the theological context that empowers our understanding and gives us knowledge and wisdom as to why the practical aspect makes sense, and that we have a pattern, an example, a paradigm that we're to follow Jesus' example and live out the example he's given us. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, did he do a whole lot of complaining? Do you remember him doing a whole lot of whining and murmuring? I mean, if anybody could complain for feeling they didn't deserve something that was painful, it was one person, above all else, Jesus, And if it's something they went through that was painful, above all else, it was 
one experience beyond all other experiences, the crucifixion. So you have the most innocent person receiving the greatest injustice that could possibly take place to anyone. And he's the most innocent person. Yet on the cross, what's his mentality? My, you know, God, you know, if, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, amen? So that's the example he gives us. So here I am, not, I mean, not even, I mean, infinitely inferior to Jesus and deserving death. And I'm going to complain about things that go on in my life. And we all have things that we can complain about. That's why we're all commanded to be careful and go through trials and continue to seek Jesus. But if I keep in perspective, look what he went through when he didn't deserve it to save me. And I deserve to be separated from him in the lake of fire forever, but I'm not. And I've got to go through some things here and there on this planet that are, can be rough at times and very painful at times. But guess what? I can get through them because guess what? He is at work in me to will and to do his good purpose. And I can work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. And I obtained, obtained the goal of my faith. Amen. And Jesus... It's not an accident either that he's talking about how he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's a name above every name. He's showing you the path to glory. And the path to glory is to follow in his steps and reap the dividends of his gospel and what he did for you through, by grace through faith and trust in him. Amen? So verse 14, it's a short verse. Do all things without grumbling and dis- or disputing. Now, if you hear these things and you don't do them, you know, blessed is the one that does these things, you know? Jesus said to the disciples after he washed their feet, feet happier to you if you do likewise. James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deluding your own selves. So you can't just hear the word, you have to say, wait, am I, those, am I one of those people that's constantly disputing with people? Constantly complaining, having a hard time with everybody? and you're calling yourself a Christian, well, guess what? Sometimes Christians can fall into that, okay? Otherwise, he wouldn't be telling them not to do this, right? Right, amen? But if we're gonna be calling ourselves Christians, we need to be consistent with following Christ. And therefore, when God checks us by his Holy Spirit and through his word, we need to recalibrate. We need to repent, metanoia. And by the way, man, that word metanoia, repent, means change of heart, change of mind. That talks about the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of repentance. When I do Christian counseling, guess what word comes up a lot? Metanoia, repentance. Because guess what? A lot of times when there's conflict, there needs to be repentance on one or more parts. Five of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus told to repent. And guess what? That means in our Christian walks, if we're murmuring and disputing, we're constantly exalting our position above everybody else's, and we're not allowing to, even to think about somebody else's position and that they might have a point, they might be right in some way, and they might even be more right than you, and you just are so full of pride where you don't accept any other input except your own, that's a serious thing. And I know how important this is. Why? Because I raised a few kids, and I have a bunch of grandkids, you know? I got a wife, and I know that... Uh, you need to listen and you need to pay attention. You need to be considerate. 
you know, with what others are saying, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And hey, does it line up with scripture? How do I walk in love toward this person? How do I show them the kindness of God if I feel that they're wrong? How do I gently show them they're wrong? But how do I also firmly stand on God's word? If they're convinced that they're right, but they don't see in a certain area. I have to go through this with counseling when I see couples, you know, back and forth with each other, you know, and I have to say, hey, consider what she's saying or hey, consider what he's saying. And sometimes people get so full of anger because of being mistreated in the past that they can't even hear the other person. So it's imperative that we take a step back and examine our lives and say, wait a minute, I'm finger pointing, but guess what? I've got some, some argumentative spirit sometimes or, or I, I'm, I'm, you know, and, and you'll know God will be speaking to you if you're not right in this and hopefully by his Holy Spirit, he'll speak to you about, about being at peace, you know? If I'm arguing with my wife and my kids and other people, I got to say, wait, man, what's going on here? It's probably going to be me, okay? No, but guess what? Everybody else sometimes can't be wrong. When Jesus was crucified, everybody was wrong but him, amen? What did he do? He hung in there, amen? He hung in there and said, I know you're going to make it right to the Father. I'm going to finish the work you've given me to do. Let's finish the work God's given us to do. Amen? So it's important that we understand that we live in a wicked world. And if we're going to live this life, and this is very important, because when Paul talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, when he talks about it's God working in you, he's the source of your salvation, and he's the one that, that wills you to go forward and gives you the willingness to go forward, and he helps you do his good pleasure. Guess what command he gives us in that context? Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Wow, that's pretty interesting. It's like that hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, Lord, you know, there's a lot of commands you could have given right there. You wouldn't want me to be a grumbler. Because what happens when we go through a trial, what happened to the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt and they were going into the promised land? Many of them grumbled. They started getting angry at God. And they started acting as though they were right and God was wrong. God was patient for some time, but said, okay, you want to go back to Egypt? You're not even going to make it back to Egypt. I'm done with you. So we have to take these words very, very seriously no matter what you're going through right now, you need to trust God. Verse 15. So do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 14, but it rolls in verse 15, so that you will what? Prove yourselves to be blameless. And blameless, a Greek word there means to be without accusation, without an accusation that holds up against you. So you want to live your life in such a way where nobody can accuse you and say, ah, oh, you did evil there. Oh, you call yourself a Christian, man, but you, that's like, so wrong. And if you look at any of our lives through our entire past, there's going to be accusations that are going to be able to fall against you. And Satan is the greatest accuser. He's accused of the brethren. Amen. But now that we're Christians, we ought to live without any bona fide accusation. We ought to walk in the light and go forward. Blameless and what? Innocent. Without guilt of hurting God's heart and hurting other people. Children of God. Children of God because, hey, children of God should be consistent as his children. If you were a child of mammon, that would mean you were about money. If you're a child of lust, that would mean you're about lust. But if you're a child of God, that means you're like the Lord. 
above reproach, above reproach, meaning you have a walk that, that shines in the midst of a what? You're supposed to be blameless and innocent as children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. During this COVID-19 thing deal, it's just like, it's just so much perversion, you know? When I see that we have about 60,000 deaths in the United States right now because of COVID-19, 60,000 too many, right? It's very sad, very heartbreaking. But when you have in the same period of time over a couple hundred thousand babies being murdered and, the, and these liberals in the media and Nancy Pelosi and Schumer and Cuomo, they talk about, oh, we're so concerned about life. No, you are not concerned about life. Because you even tried to sneak in or get in, Mrs. Pelosi, as part of the first stimulus bill, freeing up money to go to Planned Parenthood to kill more babies, okay? Makes me sick to my stomach. We live in a crooked and perverse world. Amen? And guess what? We need to know where we're at. This is not our home. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Amen? If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. He said, I have chosen you out of the world. This is not our home. Quit acting like this is home. We are vapors here for a short time. And this vapor is getting a little bit older. I'm thinking, well, I'm a vapor for sure. I keep preaching as long as God lets his vapor preach. But I'll tell you what. Don't forget the world that you live in. Don't be conformed to the world, the Bible says. Don't become like the world system in mimicking the evil that is all about us, okay? It's just very, very important that we understand that we live in a world that is so depraved. The destruction of marriage has happened just in the last couple decades in our country to where it's been redefined. Now there's over 100 different sexes you can pretend to be and claim it's scientific, which is just a ridiculous lie. There's male and female, that's the science. Babies are living. They're not dead. They're growing. Only living things grow. They're humans growing in the, bo- in, the, in the womb. That's murder. So we live in a very corrupt world. So when I hear politicians talking about what they want to do and they act like they care, but they can't even care about the most innocent, vulnerable people on the planet, but butcher them by the millions, that's not love. And as Christians, we need to, there should be a difference in our heart and our actions regarding justice and what's right and true, genuine, biblical social justice. It was the Christians that were on the forefront as abolitionists trying to put slavery to the end. You know that. Study, study with the slave, Atlantic free slave trade. Okay. Oh yeah, there were hypocrites that were on the other side. Of course, there's always hypocrites. But it was genuine believers and we live in a, and I'm telling you what, man, because you know what? The things that Satan loves and the things that basically define much of pagan religion is blood, senseless bloodshed, and sexual perversion. And that's what you see, man. Bloodshed with innocent babies and sexual perversion run amok. We live in a very paganistic country. And Jesus called us to be separate from the world. 
John 17, 6, in his high priestly prayer, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept my, your word. John 17, 17, 14, 15, his high priestly prayer, before he goes to get crucified for us, he prays this prayer. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's our, that's our lives. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He's not praying that we just get raptured after we get saved, okay? We'll be raptured when it's time to come back, when the fullness of the gospel has been preached to all the nations, then the end will come and he will come. But in the meantime, we have marching orders and he's praying, he says, I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And the world hates them. So we're supposed to be separate from the evil world that we live in. You know, it's interesting. There's a uh, early Christian writing, which I find quite fascinating. And it's, it's written around 125 AD. 125, maybe earlier. This, uh, this, this writing, uh, Diognetus. It's written to Diognetus. And Diognetus is a, is a recipient of the letter, which means uh, God-born or born of God. And it's interesting because the one who writes this letter, okay, it's, it's, it's interesting because there's no name that's actually uh, given other than he says he's a student of the apostles or the disciples. And it's uh, methotes is, is the term, but that's the term that's the transliteration of the Greek of disciple. So we, we say it's the letter of methotes to uh, Diognetus, you know, but we don't have a whole lot of history other than knowing that the way it's written, it appears to be written at 125 or earlier. Now, it's interesting when you look at this writing, he's writing about what it means to be a Christian to Diognetus. And he's writing about how the Christians were living at the beginning of the second century or just after the first century. This would be just after the apostle John had died. And he's explaining Christianity and, and what it looks like. And it's interesting because uh, the, the, the author, uh, Methotes, is encouraging them as a student of, a, of the apostles, he says, as to what it means to live the Christian life. And he says, I do not speak of things strange to me. Now notice how they understood themselves as being separate from the world and how the world was tripping out on the Christians in the first century. And why do I say this? Why do I emphasize this? Because we're called to be not of the world. And look at verse 15. I, I read the end of the verse. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights or stars in the world. Wow. So in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation that we live in, where they're slaughtering babies by the millions, Okay? They've redefined marriage and they could care less about transgressing holy boundaries that God has set between men and women and so forth and, they, and, and, and sex becomes the end all rather than producing children to God's glory in the confines of, of a marriage is a beautiful thing and all these different things. We're supposed to shine as lights and they were doing that in the first century, the Christians. And listen to what Diognetus says. I do not speak of things strange to me, nor do I aim at anything inconsistent with right reason. But having been a disciple of the apostles, I became a teacher of the Gentiles. Now, 
Listen to what he says. I just think it's powerful. Listen to this letter. I love reading the early church fathers and the writings of the early church because they inspire me more than all the other Christian literature that's been written ever since the first few centuries of church history. And there's a lot of good things that have been written since too. But I love the early church fathers. That's when the church was at its purest. Most excellent Diognetus, I can see that you deeply desire to learn how Christians worship their God. You have so carefully and earnestly asked your questions about them. What is it about the God that they believe in and the former religion they observe that lets them look down upon the world and despise death? Wow. Why do they reject the Greek gods or the Jewish superstitions alike? What about the affection that they all have for each other? That's what Christianity ought to be. And I'm happy to know many, many Christians by the grace of God, including this fellowship and extended this fellowship and a knowing of, of many, many, many around the world that I've never met that love Jesus where they do love one another. It's the Christians that are the ones going out on the mission field. It's the Christians that have built most of the hospitals that were built in the last century and a half. Amen? And, and most of the universities that were built in time past, many of them have been hijacked, obviously, by those who teach some of the barbaric things we were just talking about. What about the affection of all who we have for each other? Then he goes on to write, For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the, for, by the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation or inquisitive men of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has been determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. In other words, they didn't dress like Amish, totally different than everybody else. They displayed to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of a life. So even though they ate the same food, they wore the same clothes, they had an incredibly striking way of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. It's not our world, man. God's chosen us out of this world. As citizens, they share in all the things with others, and yet endure all things as, for, as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is as a land of strangers. Wow. They marry, as do all others. They, be, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They don't abort their babies. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They share each other's food, but they don't share each other's wives. Isn't that interesting? They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. I love that, man. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. So we obey the laws. COVID-19, yeah. You're not singling out Christians. You're just saying, hey, to all of us, sit put for a little bit. And you may agree or disagree, but as Christians, we seek to try to obey those laws. But it says they obey the laws, prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. Like for instance, the law says not to get drunk and drive. We don't get drunk and drive, but guess what? We don't get drunk either. We surpass the laws that are given to us by men. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. I love that. They are poor, yet make many rich. 
They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are, dis, they are dishonored, yet in very, they're honored, he says. They are dishonored, but they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Isn't that powerful? Let's continue to make sure we give them no reason for their hatred because Satan loves, would love for them to have cause to hate us. That's why it says if any of you suffers as a criminal, make sure it's according to, don't suffer, as a, no, don't let any of you suffer as a criminal. If any of you suffers, let him suffer because he's doing the will of God, amen? So we want to suffer for doing things wrong. So they were separate from the world and they shine as lights and he calls us here to shine as lights, okay? Shine as stars in this fallen world, amen? Jesus said, you are the light of the world, Paul said, walk as children of light. John said, walk in the light as he is in the light. Jesus says, believe while you can so you become children of light. Now it's interesting. We're supposed to shine as stars according to the text there, as lights in this world. And I think it's important to understand that that's contrasted with Jude chapter one, verse 13, where it talks about the false teachers. It talks about Jude and the second Peter, which are twin epistles, how they're like hidden reefs, you know? Um, which your boats would go aground. They can shipwreck your faith. And he uses these nautical terms because he also says to the false prophets that they are wandering stars. They're like wandering stars. And it's important because sailors would have to look at, you know, uh, they'd look to the stars when they navigated. They, that was their GPS, so to speak. And good sailors knew they, you know, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, for instance, they would look at the North Star. And as they looked at the North Star, they would be able to know how to navigate, okay? And the Bible talks about in the book of Job that the angels are called sons of God, amen? They're called uh, the, the morning stars that sang for joy when he created the universe, right? We read in the book of Revelation chapter two and three, the letters written to the seven that are given to these seven stars that are his hands, called seven angels, but they're also called stars. Sometimes stars represent angels, Revelation 12, they represent fallen angels, Satan and a third of the stars. And then it says a third of his angels. So sometimes they represent angels, good angels, Job, fallen angels, human beings. And here, we're supposed to be lights in this world. You're, you're, you're supposed to be a shining star for Jesus. Wandering stars, though, which is kind of interesting when you look at this, what the sailors did. They look at the North Star, right? Which is, you know, Polaris and part of the... Uh, small dipper, so to speak. And when all the other stars seem to be shifting from the human perspective, it stays fixed, which is kind of interesting. And you could use a North Star to navigate your, your ship. And, but if you followed a comet, right, a slow-moving comet or something, or, or another star that seemed to be wandering because it's a figurative language being used, you'd be led aground. You could destroy your ship. And the false teachers, it says in verse 13, the blackest of darkness is reserved for them forever. That's where they're going. That's where they're leading the, the people that are following them. But we're supposed to be like shining lights like the North Star, which lead people to the kingdom shore, amen? By our examples, you have people looking at you. So it's important that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When Jesus became a man and died for us as our example, that was to save us. 
Now we, and he's the sun, amen? He's the ultimate star in the universe, so to speak. We're stars that point to the son of God to lead people to the kingdom shore. And it's so vital, it's so important that we get this, that we understand this, that we show them the true North Star. Now it's interesting because we want to make sure we're shining for Jesus. And I read something recently, a Hindu teacher in India once asked a missionary, what do you put on your face to make it shine? The missionary was a bit shocked, answered, I don't put anything on it. And then the Hindu uh, said, hey, started to lose patience and spoke more forcefully and said, yes, you do. Uh, all of you who believe in Jesus seem to have the same thing. I've seen it in the towns of Angra and Surat and even the city of Bombay. Suddenly the Christian understood that it's uh, talking about their faces glowing because of their love for Jesus. Now I know what you mean. And I tell you, I'll tell you the secret. It's not something we put on from the outside, but something that comes within. It's a reflection of the light of God in our hearts. Amen? And as Christians, if you're believing in Jesus, you're trusting him. The Bible says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Amen? And Paul says that as God spoke and light shined out of darkness, that the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has shined in our hearts. We have him living in us. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling so he's seen by the lost world so we can be shining stars that point to Jesus. Right now, those who are called stars in the world, when you think of the stars, oh, there's stars over there hanging out together, some of the stars, what do they think of? They think of some of those immoral, perverse people in the world. Isn't that amazing? Who believe in killing babies, who believe in sexual perversion, and champion it. In the meantime, you have all these thousands and thousands of nurses, you know, doctors, not knowing exactly what COVID-19 was, even, even was at first, or if their lives were in jeopardy, but going to work and doing, doing their thing on the front lines. Those are the people that are heroic, you know? The people that put their lives in law enforcement on the line. Those that barge in and save somebody from a, a building that's collapsing because it's on fire. Amen? And the millions and millions through the centuries of Christians who've gone to foreign lands selflessly to reach people because they wanted them to have eternal life so they could be a shining star that would point them to Jesus. Amen? And the Bible says those who are first will be last. And those who are last will be first. And it's not those who believe, who blaspheme and hate Jesus who are going to be first. Amen? Pray that they repent and they even get in. Amen? But it's those of you who lovingly, humbly say, I'm going to continue the race that I'm in. And I'm going to continue on the highway to holiness. Not in my own strength, trying to push my own car, but relying on his strength as I go forward in Jesus. And as I go forward in Jesus, I'm not going to murmur and whine and complain. I'm going to smile and say, hey, he is the way, the truth, and life. Follow me as I go to Christ. Amen? And then they will end up on the kingdom shore. And then we can all rejoice together. Remember, our lives are short. Let's continue to live for Christ until that final day. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you aren't yet saved, well, guess what? Those wandering stars, guess where they're going? Goes that same verse talks about the, the black darkness that's reserved for them. They're going to be separated from God, away from all light forever and ever. Jesus is light. We shine and shine his message to you and say, hey, he loves you. You're going to be in darkness too because you're a sinner just like us and we all deserve death and we're all doomed because of our sin and 
and you're doomed and we're doomed without Jesus, but we came to Jesus, we were saved, not because we're these really righteous people that were like, oh, I'm a good guy, Jesus saved me, because we recognize we're hopeless without him. We came to him in faith, and in his grace and his mercy, he saved us, washed us from our sins. Amen. He can wash you from your sins. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, right now is the time, man. We need to say, God, have mercy on me. He's right. I'm a sinner. I'm doomed without God. And you turn from your sin, and you repent, and you say, Lord, I'm going to trust Jesus because he paid for all the crimes I committed against you on the cross. He bore my sins and my punishment on the cross. He was condemned in my place so I could be accepted by you and forgiven of my sins and be with you forever. Make sure you make that decision. He that has the son has the life. He that does not have the son does not have the life. Let's press on in Jesus. Don't quit. Keep going forward. Keep seeking him and keep rejoicing in him. Love you guys. Praise God.